Um, you've noticed this morning on the seats around you, there's these cards, these VIP prayer cards. And uh, if you've been a part of Thrive for a while, you've seen these before. If you're new to our church family, you're going, what is this? Well, I want to answer that question. We are moving into our Christmas season, and on Sunday, December 22nd, is our Christmas service. It's that Sunday morning. Uh, We've got some fun things planned for this Christmas season. Of course, the the party on the 14th is going to be a blast. I invite you to be a part of that, but I also encourage you to think about who you might want to invite to come with you to that, because who doesn't want to go to a party? Am I right? And it's going to be a good party. We've got some really fun things planned. But here's what we want to do as a church family. I think sometimes we go into these seasons, as Bob was saying, like, this, this is our time. This is, this is the time where we celebrate as the church the birth of our Savior, right? And, and, and during this season, people's hearts are so much more open to not just hearing about Jesus, but receiving an invitation And so rather than just going into this season without any kind of intentionality, what we want to do as a church family is pray about who the people are in our circle, in our sphere of influence, those VIPs, those very important people, not just to the Lord, but to us, that we would say, you know what, Lord, there are these these people in my life who, who maybe don't know Jesus, who don't have a relationship with the, the Savior of the world. Say, Lord, I want to see these people in my life come to know the Lord. I want them to know you. And to write their names down, this is where the, uh, it gets practical for us. To actually write their names down and then to put this in a place in your home, in your car, in a place that you're going to see it over the next few weeks. And as much as possible to pray for these people. In fact, we included some check boxes there because I know for some people it's like, I want to be able to go, hey, I've done each day and just staying on track with that. I, I really think there's, there's few things that would be more important than for us to pray for the salvation of the people in our lives. Amen? Amen. I want to say that again. There's few things more important than us committing to pray for the salvation of the souls of the people that uh, God has put into our lives. This, this is an important part of who we are as the church. And so for us to come together to pray over these names, I've given some points on the back, some ways that you can pray scripture over those, those lives and over those people and believe that God will bring breakthrough, that the enemy's voice would be silenced and that they would o- be open to receive what God has for them. Now, here's the point of action for you. So we're going to pray and ask the Lord who those names are. We're going to commit to pray for those people, and then we're going to step out of our comfort zone, and we're going to extend an invitation, and we're going to be equipping you with some cards and, uh, and uh, some uh, flyers that you can pass out to people and as you invite them to church to be able to say, hey, come and join me. I'd love to host you at church. Uh, I think two of the key places for that will be, and we've noted that on the card, on the 14th at the Christmas party, because again, who doesn't want to go to a party? Um, And the other would be that Christmas Sunday. And would you just start preparing your heart to say, okay, Lord, how can I partner in kingdom work in this way? Amen? Let's do this. I want to pray over these. If you have one of these cards, would you just lift it up? Would you raise it up? Maybe already the Lord's uh, putting the names of some people on your heart. Uh, maybe their faces are just coming to mind right now. And I want to pray over these. Uh, Lord God, we cover these cards. They're just paper with, with ink. 
But Lord, as we write down names and as we pray these prayers, Lord, we recognize that there's something that happens in the Spirit. And God, that our prayers are powerful and effective. Lord, that our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual and they are powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. And God, we recognize there are people whose lives are, uh, Lord, have strongholds. There are things, Lord, that are keeping them trapped from knowing you. And we pray, Lord, that those things would be torn down and that people would come to know you this Christmas season through our faithfulness in praying and inviting Open those doors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll keep mentioning those over the next few weeks, uh, and we'll celebrate what God does through that. Well, we are concluding a series this morning uh, entitled Letters to the Church, and we spent the last three weeks looking at some of the pastoral epistles or the, the epistles written by the Apostle Paul to some of the churches in uh, in the early church in that, in that world at that time. Um, we've mentioned that uh, of the 21 epistles in the New Testament, epistle simply mean, means letter, uh, that, that of the 21 letters written in the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 of them uh, and is a major contributor to the, the New Testament writings. Of course, uh, as I've mentioned before, Paul didn't know when he was writing these letters that he was writing the Bible. He was just writing letters. He was just being faithful in caring for the sheep that God had put under his care, for the churches that were being established and without the kind of structure that we have in, in, uh, in religious uh, organizations today and in church denominations. They didn't have that. We didn't have, they didn't have the Bible as we have it today. And so they relied on people like Paul and the early church fathers and those who were leaders in the church to, to help guide them and steer them. And so Paul writes these letters uh, to, to encourage, and he writes these letters to equip, and he writes these letter to, letters to confront certain things uh, in the church. I want, to, I want you to turn this morning, either in your Bible or if you use an app, uh, you know, to read the Bible, uh, turn to the book of Colossians, uh, the book of Colossians, the epistle to the church in Colossae. You know, we place as a society a high value on intelligence. Have you noticed that? Uh, we, we think intelligence is a big deal. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's relevant. It's seen in our educational system. It's seen in our news media. Uh, it's seen in our entertainment. Uh, really, the more intelligent you are, the further you're going to get in life. Uh, in fact, that is, that is, if we were to boil down the whole marketing campaign of every uh, educational or system of higher learning, that's their entire marketing campaign, right? The more intelligent you are, the further you're going to get. So go get a degree or three or four. There's all kinds of studies that have been done to try and determine what, where intelligence comes from and how one becomes intelligent. Are you just born smart or can you add to your smartness? Can you increase in your intelligence? And what's amazing is that God has created us with a capacity to think. Most of us. No, no, I'm just kidding. He's created all of us with a capacity to think and dream and reason and learn and create and evaluate and invent and understand and to test and to, to go through all of these things, to, to do science. 
to look at the world and to understand the world around us. He's given us this incredible capacity. Um, Disney just released their whole app, their, their Disney Plus movie service. And I don't know about you in your home, my, my kids signed up for it. And, uh, and so it's been all kinds of Disney movies going on in our house and some really older ones and some it, Pixar movies. And I, we watched the other day, we watched uh, uh, Inside Out. Uh, the, the movie about the little girl's brain and how that works. And it's such a great picture of, of how God has designed our, our minds to be able to learn and, and grow and how our emotions are tied into that. This is all a gift from God. And, and, and it feels good, doesn't it, to be, to be called smart. For someone to say, wow, you're extremely intelligent. Or in the rare case that someone might say, oh my goodness, you are a genius. You're a genius. So, so when you think of the word genius, how many of you think of Albert Einstein, right? You just see that hair and like, you're like, that's a genius. That guy was so smart. I would never be as smart as that guy. It feels good to be called smart. We have things like the IQ test. The IQ test, which determines how intelligent you are, which interestingly, Alfred Binet, who was a, a French uh, scientist, sociologist, uh, developed an early version of what would ultimately become the IQ test. And you know, the reason he developed it was to help in the Paris school system. They were trying to identify students that were struggling so that they could resource them and help them. That, that's where the IQ test, kind of the origins came from. What we know now is the IQ test isn't, it really used as a tool to say, well, where are you struggling so we can help you? It's used as a tool to identify who's the smartest among, among us. And then we have organizations like Mensa, right? You got to be at a certain level to qualify to be a part of this group of really smart people, which is great, good, good for them. For the most part, the research has been helpful and we've learned a lot, but... There's a problem. Ironically, all of this can go to our heads. <laughs> it goes to our heads. We start thinking, man, I'm really smart. I'm smarter than the next guy. I'm smarter than the next gal. I evaluate the people around me based on, am I more intelligent? Am I smarter? And then we do really, really underhanded things to prove how smart we are. We try and present ourselves in a way that makes us look smarter, sound smarter. We use bigger words, or, right? And, and, and we get puffed up in, the, in this whole thing that, that God just intended to be a gift to us. We start thinking that we know everything. Maybe not individually, but definitely as a society. We've figured out all of the answers, we know everything. We become prideful and arrogant. When you look at the world around you, do the words prideful and arrogant come to mind at all? You just look at the news for five minutes and we become self-sufficient. It's no surprise that it's technology, scientific discovery, and intelligence have increased that our view of and trust in God has diminished. As we as a society become smarter, we start needing God less. 
because I can figure it out on my own. And maybe that's something that, that you struggle with in your own life, or maybe we're just part of the bigger problem as a nation. It's interesting that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 through 4, of course, Jesus was extremely countercultural. He didn't just buy into what everyone was selling in the day. He came to present something very different. He says, it says this, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, I, I truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus turns us upside down and he says, listen, it's not about who, who's the smartest. It's not about who's the most intelligent. Become like this child. Have the kind of faith and trust that a child would have. And it's interesting that there's been research and studies that have been done that said we essentially, as, as a culture in our educational system, educate creativity out of our kids. That they start out as little geniuses, and the more we educate them, the more confined they become in their thinking. And this is, this is scientifically proven. And then we think, we're so smart. And God goes, no, there's something that I've put into you, and it's evident in the lives of children especially, the creative capacity, but also the, the ability to just trust, to engage. You ever notice that little kids make, make friends very quickly, Right? They don't think about, okay, well, is this person going to be beneficial to me? Or how is this person going to be for, help me further me in my life? They're just like, hey, these seem cool. I'm going to hang out with them. Let's go play on the playground. Like when we go to the park next week for the picnic. Like the kids, there is no like, hey, there's this group, this group, this group, this group. They get on the playground and it's just kids everywhere. And I will play with whoever because, hey, you're there. And the smarter we get, the more isolated we become the more we, we think we know, we're actually going backwards. Why do I say all of that? Because this was the problem in Colossae. This was the issue that was starting to make its way into the church. So Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church, again while he's in, in prison in Rome. He'd never visited the church. He'd never been there personally like he had been in Ephesus or in Philippi. Um, but he did, did function as an overseer. And in fact, um, he had sent Epaphras, who had preached in Philippi, I mean, rather in Colossae and uh, in Laodicea. And it's believed that Epaphras was the one who established the church in these communities as he was sent by Paul. So Colossae was a, a, a city that was located in what is now Turkey, about 100 miles to the east of Ephesus. So I know that's a little hard to see, but uh, so, so over on the right here under where the, the, the um, chart is, it says that there's Ephesus, one of those red crosses, little red dots is Ephesus. And just to the right, there's two, uh, a cross with a red circle and then a black cross with a yellow circle. That, those two churches are Laodicea and Colossae, or those two communities. Of course, the, the ones in red are the churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation by John. And, and we, we hear about the church in Laodicea there. 
But so the, here's Colossae. So it's a little more inland. It's not unlike the other churches that we've talked about, which were on the coast. This church was more inland. Um, also a, a city of a lot of commerce, a lot of trade, kind of a, a crossroads church, uh, community rather. Um, it, was, it was a lot of people just coming and going. Um, and, and it was in this place, in this context that these churches start. And from Paul's writing, we understand that the church in Laodicea and the church in Colossae were very close. In fact, he says at one point in this letter, hey, take this letter and go and read it in the church in Laodicea and take the letter that I wrote to them and bring it here to Colossae and read that letter in this church uh, as well. Um, It's interesting to note that Paul's structure in writing this letter is actually very similar to the book of Ephesians or the letter to the, the church in Ephesus, though the letter in, to the church in Ephesus is substantially longer. Uh, he kind of takes on the same format, the same theme, addresses some of the same things, uh, specifically talking about the centrality and the work of Jesus, and then talking to and addressing things regarding daily, just daily Christian living, how to be a Christian and how to be the church and how to treat one another. But there was a big issue that was confronting the church in Colossae, and this is the major theme for this letter. See, in this community, in this, in this city, one of the things that was starting to, to show itself was, is something called Gnosticism. Now, true Gnosticism only really emerged fully uh, about 140 years later. And so what what Colossae had was an early onset case of Gnosticism. It was, it was starting to show up. There were symptoms of this starting to show up. And, and Gnosticism was this. It was uh, this, this way of thinking that emphasized the supremacy of knowledge. That knowledge was everything. That the Gnostics were completely obsessed with knowledge. The more you can know. And that their whole approach to salvation was that salvation came through knowledge, not by faith. Can you see the problem already? That Gnosticism was all about what you knew. And the more you knew, the more saved you were. If They wouldn't have used that word. But, but that's the thing that, that essentially got you closer to God. It was, it was this knowledge and that faith really didn't have a part in that. And what was starting to happen in the church was that this Gnostic way of thinking was starting to integrate itself into the life of the church and into the teaching of the church. And it was creating all kinds of issues and all kinds of debate. One of the things that Paul deals with is this idea of special revelation. I'm doing air quotes. Love doing air quotes. You have a special revelation. Yes, you might know Jesus, but I've, got to t- I, I've had a special revelation. And I'm a part of a special club because I've learned something that you don't know. I've, I've been, something's been revealed to me through my study and through my understanding that you don't know. And so the special revelation puts me into a special category that I'm closer to God because of this, yes, Jesus and, and his work on the cross, that's all wonderful. But now you need to also know more. You need to have this extra. And so you were either in or you were out. You either had it or you didn't. And it was all based on your behavior. 
It was all based on how you presented yourself based on what you knew. And so people were starting to buy into this and think, oh, yeah, well, okay, it's Jesus and. Jesus and this. Jesus and that. Jesus and. And can I tell you, it's never Jesus and, it's Jesus, period. It's Jesus, period. If, there, if you ever encounter, whether in, in Christianity or in the world, in the church, any kind of thinking that says, well, Jesus, but you also need to run. Because it is Jesus, 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 Jesus. All the way, all the time. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul starts dealing with this. By the way, as a four-square church, I don't know if you knew that, but we're a four-square church. And you might go, well, what is four-square? Do we, do we have that slide? We have that slide right on. We are the four-square church. And, and there's these four symbols uh, that, that, that communicate what the four-square church is. And, and our, our stance as a denomination is centered on the work in the person of Jesus Christ. And so starting on the left here, we see the cross. That Jesus is our Savior. That he did our saving work at Calvary. And of course, he rose from the dead. But Jesus is our Savior. We see the dove, the Holy Spirit, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. That Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. He told us, it's for your benefit that I go. Because when I go, the Spirit will come. And he baptizes us and he empowers us by the Holy Spirit. The cup is a symbol of healing, that Jesus is our healer. You need healing in your life? Jesus. Call on the name of Jesus. His promise is that you will have healing through him. And then finally, the crown, that Jesus is our king, our soon and coming king, that he is the Lord, that he has established that his kingdom will never end. Fully centered on the work and the person of Jesus. I love our denomination. I love the family that we get to be a part of that, be part of because of that. That the centrality of Jesus, by the way, the word four square, it's an older word. But, but in, back in the 20s and the 30s, the word four square referred to something that was solid. Something that, like a foundation would have been four square if it was a solid foundation. We build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He is a four-square foundation. The church in Colossae was struggling with this. This problem was starting to come in. Part of the the issue with Gnosticism was this. It held, held this view that the things that were material, things that you could touch, including flesh, were inherently evil. That spiritual things were good, but tangible things, material things were inherently evil. And and the big problem that this presents is this. Gnostics would say that God would never come in flesh because flesh is evil. Our whole theology and our faith is built on this, that Jesus came, God incarnate came as a human being. And took on flesh to save us. Right. And so as this, as this teaching starts making its way into the church, Paul gets fired up. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. 
This is not acceptable because this stands against the person of Jesus. By the way, to this day, any system of thinking, any faith system of thinking that denounces or diminishes the work of Jesus is not of God. Oh, Jesus was a good teacher. No. He's God and he taught really well. Oh, he was just a prophet. No. Oh, Jesus was just like the angels. No. Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is our Savior. And he submitted himself. He humbled himself and took on flesh and extended himself to us through grace. To extend grace to us, rather, so that we could be saved. So Paul writes these warnings. He says he warns them against the idea that the body is evil. By the way, what they would do is this: because the flesh was evil, they would hurt themselves. They would torture themselves. They would the Gnostics would would harm their own flesh to somehow prove that they were better. Look, I'm 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 inflicting pain because you know. This body, this body is evil. You know that the Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? It stands in contrast to what God's word says. He warned them about relying on human philosophy and knowledge and tradition. Hey, those things are not, they're not the truth. They can have elements of truth, but, but that's not where our focus is. And he, he warned against specifically the worship of angels, which I think is something that we see a lot in the world around us. That there's this, this, focus on the angelic and the angels the bible says that that we have authority that the angels don't have and that there's idea i pray to angels no you don't pray to angels we don't pray to angels so so what's the major theme of the book of colossians because we've looked at the themes of the other books or the other letters right for the galatians it was freedom for the ephesians it was unity Right? And last week we talked about Philippians. And what was the theme? What's that? Rejoice. It was joy. I need your help because I couldn't remember for a second. No. It was joy or rejoice. You know what the theme of Colossians is? Jesus. <laughs> the theme is Jesus. Just straight across the board, the theme is Jesus. In fact, Colossians is the most Christ-centered book in the Bible. Um, and that's saying a lot because Jesus shows, a lot, shows up a lot in the Bible. But, but to counter what was happening in Colossae, Jesus, I mean, Paul rather hits the theme and the emphasis of Jesus and he just ties it all together. And he's like, this, guys, you have to look to Jesus. So what I want to do this morning, I want to look at a few passages uh, that, that help us understand. It's not so much that I have points, though we'll put some things up, but I want to, I want to kind of move through the book and look at some parts of the, 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 the words that Paul wrote to the Colossian church so we can understand where Paul was coming from and the points that he makes about Jesus. A key passage in the book of Colossians, Colossians in, is found in uh, chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. He says this, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. This is Paul putting his foot down. That, that passage, those couple of verses right there, that's huge. That's huge for us. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. You know that the enemy's goal even today is to get your eyes off of Jesus. It's to start looking at the things that the world, the good ideas. I don't know what the deal is with air quotes today. We're just going to run with it. The good ideas that the world presents. And we get, we get suckered into it. Ooh, oh, that, that sounds good. And the best question to ask all the time is this. What does this say about Jesus? When, when it's examined, when it's stripped away, when it's, when it's turned upside down, because God has given us the ability to do that, and we look at it from, the, from different angles to say, what does this tell us about Jesus? What conclusions does this draw about who Jesus is? What does this expect of me in regard to my relationship with Jesus? And if it does not line up with the Word of God, throw it out. See, the enemy wants to get you away. Satan wants to distract you, and he's going to use hollow and deceptive philosophy. Oh, there's a lot of philosophy in the world. There's a lot of people writing a lot of things and thinking a lot of things in the name of Jesus that couldn't be further from the person of Jesus. And God has given us a capacity to go, you know what? Is this right on or not? Paul says that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And right there, he counteracts and contradicts every Gnostic that would have read that letter. That in Jesus, the fullness of who God is, is present. That he is fully God and he is fully man. And not only that, that in Christ you've been brought to fullness. Because of what he has done we have the fullness of life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, that you would have life and have it to the, to the full, to have it abundantly, that you would thrive. He says that Jesus is the head over every power and authority. There is no one above him. There is no way of thinking, there is no system of thinking, there is no person, there is no spirit, there is no entity that is above Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, what are the most important things in your life? Or who are the most important things in your life? When you evaluate your life, even as we come up to Thanksgiving, what are you most thankful for? I, I think it's, it's, it's important to ask because what we're most thankful for really exposes what we value the most. Would you agree with that? What I'm most thankful for really shines a light on what is most important in my life. 
I mean, as we've had these fires burning around Southern California, uh, you know, and you hear people, my, my sister, in fact, was one of those who uh, had to evacuate. Middle of the night, coughs are knocking on her door going, hey, there's a fire, you got to get out. And in that, that, those, you know, they say you got five minutes and you have to decide in five minutes, what am I going to take? What's going to go with me? And of course, we hear things like, I want to take pictures. Of course, I'm going to take my kids. <laughs> I, ho- I hope that's your answer. Otherwise, that's a whole other conversation. I'm going I'm to take valuables. I'm going to take things that are heirlooms. Right, it, it, the picture thing anymore is like, yeah, I got it all. It's all in in the cloud anyway. Um, I'm gonna grab my passport. I'm gonna grab things that are sentimental, and, and it helps. It really forces you into a place to think, what's most important in my life? Of course, people are gonna go. I'm gonna make sure that my family members, that my pets, are out. But it's good for us to think about what are we most thankful for? What's most important in our lives? Pastor named Jerry Cook, who's a four-score pastor up in Oregon, he's since been to, gone to be with the Lord. He, he wrote an incredible book called Love, Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness, which I highly, highly, highly recommend. Um, but I remember he, watching him, he was in, uh, in a conference and kind of a panel setting, Q&A, and, and uh, you know, as Christians, we go, what's the most important things in your life? And, and there's all the, always the question, well, it's God first, right? And, and we say it like... Like it's some kind of special revelation. Well, God first. Okay, you said that because you have to say that. Well, it's God and then it's, it's my marriage or my family and my ministry. And then we have like this, this kind of scaled down like everything else, and, right? And I remember Jerry said this in response to that question. Because it was a, you know, how people, the, the people would try and trick Jesus. It was kind of a trick question. Well, Jerry, what's, what's the most important things in your life? What's the priorities in your life? And he, real sense of humor, um, he goes, you know, it's God first in my relationship with God. And it's God first in my marriage and in my family. And it's God first in my work and in my ministry. And it's God first in my finances. And it's God first in my relationships. And of course, you can just keep going. See, Jerry understood something. It wasn't that God was a part of my life, that Jesus isn't a part of your life, that Jesus is your life. Jesus is your life. For some of us who attended Life Bible College back in the day, you would have remembered hearing that he's Lord of all or not at all. He's Lord of all or not at all, that we can't approach Jesus in the posture that says, you get to be Lord of some of my life. Because it's an oxymoron. Lordship implies that he is the Lord of every part of who I am. Which means that when I consider what's most important in my life, of course, Jesus needs to be at the top of that list. But he also needs to be present in every aspect, in every relationship of my life. That we need to move away from compartmentalizing and using our intellect to say, well, I'll keep this part of my life separate from Jesus. For whatever reason, pain, hurt, misunderstanding, shame, well, I'll just keep this separate. God says, no, I want, I want everything. I want to be a part of every part of who you are. Colossians 2, 6 through 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. 
Why the word continue? Because we get distracted. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. Are you thankful for Jesus in your life? Are you thankful for the work that he's done for you? Are you thankful for what he offers and what he brings and how he empowers and how he speaks and how he loves and, and, and everything that he does? So the theme of this letter is thankfulness. So a couple of things that Paul presses in on. He talks about who Jesus is. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He just dives right in the beginning of the letter. He says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Can you see how he's just covering all of the bases? He's like, you're not going to get around this. Jesus is it. He's it. He is everything. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, exclamation point. This is, and I love Paul. I love how he understands his audience. He's a master communicator. And so he knows what they're dealing with. So he changes the language. He changes the way he writes to answer the question without even letting the question be asked. He goes, let me just tell you who Jesus is. And then he just goes into this entire, just this, this unpacking of who God is, who Jesus is. That he is above all, he is before all, he is under all, he, he does, he is over, he is supreme, both, both in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. That he is redeemed to himself and reconciled to himself all things whether things on earth or in heaven. And he addresses both of those issues that those people and that church would have been dealing with. And he ends it by talking about the fact that we have peace with God. We have peace with God because of what he did on the cross. Paul speaks emphatically about who Jesus is. But we can forget, just like the church in Colossae, we can forget, we can get distracted, we can get our eyes taken off of Jesus just as easily as they did. We can listen to the latest and the greatest and the newest and the catchiest. But the reality is we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus said of himself in John 14, 6 through 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He didn't say no one comes to the Father except through me unless you have a special revelation. <laughs> if you have a dream, 
you know that a lot of the, the religions that stand really in opposition to Christianity, whether you're talking about Mormonism, when you're talking about Islam, those are all really based on a special revelation. That we have these books that have been written and these visions that have been dreamed that give rise to a religion that diminishes the personhood of Jesus and the deity of Jesus or at least puts him on parallel, right, with someone else. And it stands in opposition to what Jesus said of himself and what the church was dealing with in Colossae. It's, it's something we face in the world we live in today. Well, you Christians are dogmatic. Listen, if I'm being dogmatic because of the person of Jesus, yes, I'm dogmatic. And I'm okay with that. Because I'm not going to de- diminish or decry or reduce the work of Jesus for any person because he means too much to me, because he is my Lord, because he is my King, because he is my Savior. No one comes to the Father except through me. If anything, church, this should fire us up, that we become proclaimers of the truth in a dark and depraved generation. There is no special extra other way. Jesus is the way, the only way. Paul also addresses what's happened for us in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since since then, you have been raised with Christ. What should we do? Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He's our soon and coming king. But you notice that Paul doesn't just address the mind, he addresses the heart as well. Because usually our thinking will follow our feelings. I will want something, I will long for something, I will, right, James says that we shouldn't say we're being tempted, but we should recognize that something inside of us gives rise to this desire for sin, and we need to call it out as such. So your, your heart says, you know, I want that, and your mind figures out a way, because you're so smart, and I'm so smart, and we justify and go, you know what, I deserve that. I deserve, it's okay for me. It might not be okay for that other person, but I've had a special revelation from Jesus. I I think we have to be very careful, church. Please hear me on this, especially as, as charismatics. When we say this, oh, the Lord told me. Because it's not your get out of jail free card. Because if what Jesus, what the Lord told you doesn't line up with his word, then he didn't tell you. And you're being deceived. Your heart wants something and your brain's like, well, just just insert the Lord told me and you're good to go. (laughs) The Lord told me, fill in the blank. I'll let you use your imagination because we've all been there. And we justify our sinful behavior because of special revelation. And Jesus says, no, no. This is not okay. That's not the way that it works. So we need to set our, our hearts on things above, and we need to set our minds on things above. 
And not in the way that the Gnostics do, but we have something that is above us that is solid, that is sure, that is forever, that is dependable, and His name is Jesus. Because we're hidden with Him. Colossians 2, 20-23, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world... Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Okay, there's, this is a mouthful. And I was like, Lord, do I, do I go here on this one? And I got a green light because here's the thing. I've wrestled with this my whole life. I'll tell you what, the church I grew up in was more about what you weren't supposed to do. Don't, 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 don't. Now, now, hear me. If you read, Paul actually says, hey, don't indulge in the sinful desires in the flesh. He's very clear about that. But, but I want you to hear something, and I believe that this may be for a few of you this morning. Cycles of addiction and, and, and unwanted sinful behavior in our life especially for those who've been in the church or walked with the Lord for a long time, where you're frustrated. And Paul gets this because we read this in Romans when he says, why do I keep doing the things I'm not supposed to do? But the things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do those things. And I read that and I'm like, Paul's like me. What Paul is saying here is, listen, When we look at Jesus and we understand what he has done for us and the freedom that comes because of the cross, the motivation to change is different from when there is a perspective that says, you know what, you have to perform and you have to do, don't do this, don't do that, refrain from this, refrain from that, beat yourself up and the more you do, the more Jesus will accept you. You're never going to arrive. In fact, it will press you deeper into the guilt and the shame and the condemnation which are of this world, not of the the way of the cross. And so we get into this cycle. And so Paul's addressing and he's saying, listen, this world is imposing ways of doing things and it's an appearance of wisdom. A performance mentality to please God sounds good, but it is false. False. That God has redeemed us, that he has saved us. Now again, Paul addresses, he says, don't indulge. But you have a freedom to not indulge because of what Jesus has done for you. It's not about religion. It's not about the performance of religion. It's about embracing who Jesus is in my life and in your life. And I'll finish with this. So what's our response? Paul says, you know, how are you going to respond? So, so given this understanding, this revelation that comes from the Father, what are you going to do about it? Glad you asked. Colossians 3.12. Therefore, in response to all of this, as God's chosen people, He chose you. You didn't choose Him. 
He chose you. And you responded to that invitation. Holy. That's how God sees you because of Jesus Christ. You are holy. You are declared righteous. And by the way, you're dearly loved. That nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, including yourself. That there's nothing you can do that will make God not love you. Okay, maybe you didn't catch that. There's nothing that you can do that will result in God not loving you. You are dearly loved. In response to this, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's stand together. I want to invite the worship team. I prepared to preach on this, and then I realized, oh wait, it's Thanksgiving Sunday. I thought, well, we're going to go here. And it turns out the response to this theme of Jesus is thankfulness. When I consider who Jesus is, and when I consider what Jesus has done, and when I consider the freedom I have to follow him without the world or, or, or any person or any institution imposing on me any extra expectations that he invites me to come fully honestly completely to him and that he embraces me that way I tell you what there's there's nothing that we could be more thankful for than that so as we move into this week of thanksgiving would you keep that at the forefront of your mind who Jesus is what he's done for you and your response to what he's done for you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that there is no lack in your kingdom. We thank you, Jesus, that you have secured for us once and for all, Lord, our salvation, our eternity, our identity, that we are hidden in you, that we are loved, that we are declared holy. And God, I pray that you would root out every lie. Lord, every system of religion that has been contrary to your heart, that has found its way into our hearts. Lord, every way of thinking of the world that has found its way into into our minds. And God, would you root it out? And would you help us every day to keep our eyes fixed on you? the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, thank you. We thank you. Can we lift up a shout of thankfulness to the Lord? Can we just praise him for his goodness? 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And let's seal that by worshiping together. If you need prayer, by the way, for anything at, anything at all this morning, our prayer team is available and would love to pray with you. Have a great Thanksgiving. We love you. Have a great week.